Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to RBC's conference call for the first quarter 2022 financial results. Please be advised that this call is being recorded. I would like to turn the meeting over to Asim Imran, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Mr. Imran. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. Speaking today will be Dave Bakai, President and Chief Executive Officer, Nadine Ahn, Chief Financial Officer, and Graham Hepworth, Chief Risk Officer. Also joining us today for your questions, Neil McLaughlin, Group Head, Personal and Commercial Banking, Doug Guzman, Group Head, Wealth Management, Insurance, and INTS, and Derek Nellner, Group Head, Capital Markets. As noted on slide one, our comments may contain forward-looking statements, which involve assumptions and have inherent risks and uncertainties. Actual results could differ materially. I would also remind listeners that the bank assesses its performance on a reported and adjusted basis and considers both to be useful in assessing underlying business performance. To give everyone a chance to ask questions, we ask that you limit your questions and then requeue. With that, I'll turn it over to Dave. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. Today we reported earnings of $4.1 billion, our second highest on record underscoring the strength and scale of our franchises. Net income was up 6% from last year, and we generated positive all-bank operating leverage while continuing to invest for growth. Pre-provision, pre-tax earnings were up 10% year-over-year, benefiting from robust client-driven volume growth in Canadian banking and City National, strong wealth management results, and record investment banking revenue. These were partially offset by continued moderation our trading revenue, and the impact of lower spreads. Our 17.3% return on equity, combined with a strong capital ratio, enabled us to deploy capital in a balanced manner to support client-driven growth and long-term shareholder value. Our capital position supported $1.7 billion in dividends to our largely Canadian shareholder base, as well as almost $9 million of share repurchases. In aggregate, we returned nearly $3 billion to our shareholders for a total payout ratio of 72%. We also deployed our balance sheet across our businesses to support our clients' needs and ambitions, resulting in organic RWA growth of $14 billion in the current quarter. We ended this quarter with a robust CT1 ratio of 13.5%, representing $13 billion in excess capital over an 11% level. This provides significant flexibility to continue investing in talent and technology to accelerate the deployment of capital for organic growth opportunities. And I will speak more to this strategy in a moment. Our strong capital position also enables further share repurchases, as well as providing us optionality to acquire quality franchises in growth segments that align with our current strategy and geographic footprint. Looking forward, We have a consistent and clear focus on creating client and shareholder value and a disciplined 
balanced approach to capital deployment as evidenced by our 15% year-over-year growth in book value per share this quarter and a 9% compounded annual growth rate over the last three years. Before I speak to our growth opportunities, I want to touch on the macro environment. We continue to experience market and economic volatility driven by heightened geopolitical risk, continued supply chain disruption, acute labor capacity shortages, energy market imbalances, and the resulting high inflationary conditions. However, the underlying economic drivers are still strong. As we move past the Omicron peak, we can look to record household savings, over $200 billion in Canada alone, driving consumer spending on goods and services, renewed immigration, driving demand for housing, increased business investment into just-in-case inventory strategies, and building new digital capabilities. Recent hawkish central bank commentary around the concerning level of inflation and North American economies reaching full potential suggests imminent rate increases and an acceleration of quantitative tightening programs. While the prospect of benchmark rate increases has driven volatility in equity markets, we are well positioned to benefit from rising interest rates, which Nadine will speak to later. However, we've also seen the yield curve flatten significantly over the last three months. This, combined with tight labor markets and economies reaching full potential, suggests we are closer to mid-cycle economic growth than early stages of an economic recovery. As it relates to Canadian housing, we continue to monitor supply demand imbalances across the country. We have long argued the supply side of the market must be made more responsive to demand. We encourage policymakers at all levels of government across all jurisdictions to continue working together to implement policies that address the longer-term problems of limited supply, which are driving house price inflation and creating a risk to the long-term competitiveness of the Canadian economy. I'll now expand on an increasing number of client-focused opportunities to drive accretive organic growth across our core businesses. Our leading scale enables us to invest concurrently in technology, sales, capacity, and client value, positioning us to deploy capital to drive revenue growth while increasing productivity, which Nadine will speak to later. And we will continue to leverage the significant investments we have made across our businesses over the last number of years. In Canadian banking, mortgages were up 11% year-over-year, adding nearly $9 billion this quarter alone. We expect strong Canadian mortgage growth to continue in the high single-digit range. Driven by renewed levels of immigration, pent-up demand met by increased supply, and our continued investment in expanding our mortgage sales force to capture this opportunity. On the payment side, overall consumer spending in late January and through early February was up 15% over pre-pandemic levels as restrictions continue to ease across Canada. We expect the continued reopening of the Canadian economy to drive increased credit card spend and, in time, a steeper recovery in revolving credit card balances. Our investments to enhance digital capabilities in these businesses resulted in over 55% of all new credit cards being sold digitally this quarter, and our mortgage retention rates are exceptionally strong at 90%. We have also invested in a set of integrated banking and investment solutions to provide even more value to our clients, 
including last year's launch of RBC Vantage. In addition, investments made to enhance our client value proposition continue to attract new clients. We are seeing increased engagement with our digital payment and investment products, including MyAdvisor, which now has nearly 3 million clients, up from 2 million in just one year. In the last two years alone, we have gained over 80 basis points of market share in core checking deposits and nearly 50 basis points of market share in mortgages. And a gross number of retail clients added in the last four years have contributed nearly $1 billion of revenue to our Canadian banking franchise. We also expect stronger growth in commercial lending from higher credit line utilizations driven by our clients' desire to rebuild inventory levels and adjust business models in light of the persistent supply chain disruptions and labor shortages. We are expanding our commercial account management teams and reimagining our products and services to capture this changing client value chain, including growing owner on RBC Venture and RBCX, our platform to help entrepreneurs scale up tech and life science and verticals. Turning to City National, average loans, excluding triple P loans, grew 15% from last year, with retail loans up 25%. Loan balances have increased to 56 billion US dollars, nearly two and a half times the levels from when we acquired this high quality growth franchise in fiscal 2016. We are in the process of further investing in City National's technology and operational infrastructure for the next phase of growth, including deploying improved commercial lending and mobile banking platforms. Looking forward, we expect City National to continue to generate strong, accretive growth through a multi-pronged strategy. This includes expanding private banking capabilities through mortgage-like growth and growing our mid-market commercial division. These strategies alone have added $6 billion U.S. billion in loans over the past two years. Furthermore, City National's leading entertainment franchise, supported by our film track acquisition, is well-positioned to benefit from the industry trend of increasing investment in original content and programming. Turning to our broader wealth and asset management franchises across North America, we're continuing to drive growth in these high ROE businesses, building on our current momentum. Canadian and U.S. Wealth Management, AUA, increased 18% and 14% year-over-year, respectively. And RBC Global Asset Management, AUM, increased 9% from last year to nearly $600 billion, with over 80% of AUM outperforming the benchmark on a three-year basis. Looking forward, we will continue to expand our existing team of over 2,000 advisors in Canadian Wealth Management. Our differentiated technology advantage and investment expertise help drive strong advisor productivity, generating revenue per advisor that is over 20% above the Canadian industry average. In U.S. wealth management, we remain focused on organically scaling our platform by adding experienced advisors and leveraging our investment in new products and technology. Investments we made in new securities lending products resulted in strong lending growth of nearly $3 billion U.S. billion over the past year, this new portfolio generated nearly 80 million U.S. dollars of revenue in 2021 alone. Since the start of fiscal 2019, we have hired financial advisors who are expected to bring in over 60 billion U.S. dollars of AUA. These advisors are attracted to our client-first culture coupled with our leading integrated technology platform. 
Our growing investments in people and technology has resulted in considerable momentum in our capital markets franchise, as demonstrated by our record corporate investment banking revenue of $1.4 billion this quarter. We have strengthened our talent in key verticals, including adding managing directors in U.S. investment banking, especially in the technology and healthcare sectors, as well as our M&A group. These investments have propelled RBC Capital Markets to ninth in the global league tables and position us to win increasingly attractive mandates going forward in some of the most active sectors. We are also helping our clients execute on their own sustainability strategies. We've provided $84 billion in sustainable finance in 2021, up from $73 billion in 2020, building towards our target of $500 billion by 2025. And Aiden, our AI-based electronic trading platform, has continued to gain traction, supporting our global markets clients during these volatile times. We believe these investments have structurally enhanced the earnings power of capital markets franchise, and we expect to continue to drive pre-provision, pre-tax earnings above $1 billion per quarter through 2022. Our investment banking pipeline remains healthy given the near-term economic outlook and an increased desire from clients to accelerate their own growth strategies. In this context, we will look to continue to deploy capital into capital markets, including support for underwriting commitments as our global clients continue to rely on us as an innovative and trusted partner. To sum up, we have started 2022 with continued strong momentum across our largest franchise. Our results reflect significant investments in our people, technology and products, and services to deliver differentiated value for existing clients and to continue attracting new client relationships. We have a clear focus on driving long-term shareholder value and will continue to deploy capital in a balanced manner. Nadine, over to you. Thanks, Dave, and good morning, everyone. I will start on slide seven. We reported earnings per share of $2.84 this quarter, up 7% from last year. Revenue growth was driven by strong investment management fees and mutual fund revenue, as well as strong M&A advisory fees. Pre-provision pre-tax earnings increased 10% year over year, also benefiting from positive all-bank operating leverage. Our effective tax rate increased 270 basis points from last year, mainly due to the net impact of tax adjustments and changes in earnings mix. Going forward, we expect our effective tax rate to normalize back towards 22 to 23% through the rest of the fiscal year. Before I discuss our segment results, I will spend some time on three key topics, capital deployment, rate sensitivity, and our expense outlook. Starting with capital on slide eight, our CT1 ratio was down 20 basis points sequentially to 13.5%. Our earnings added 74 basis points of capital this quarter, well in excess of 29 basis points of capital used to generate client-driven RWA growth. Net credit migration lowered RWA by $2 billion. Balanced capital deployment included 54 basis points of capital return to shareholders through dividends and share repurchases. Moving on to slide nine. Net interest income was up 5% year over year as strong client-driven volume growth in Canadian banking and City National continued to offset the impact of lower net interest margins. Now to slide 10. While the impact of low interest rates continued to persist, 
we started to see a stabilization of net interest margins in our banking franchises on both sides of the border. Canadian banking NIM was down one basis point sequentially as the competitive nature of the mortgage market drove asset spreads lower. We continue to see lower benefits from mortgage prepayment revenue, a trend we expect to moderate going forward. These factors were partially offset by an accounting adjustment that impacted NIM last quarter. City National's NIM was up six basis points relative to last quarter, with Paycheck Protection Program loans contributing most of the increase. We expect our triple P loan portfolio to largely run off by year end. To provide context on our sensitivity to rising interest rates, it's important to remember that the cumulative impact of lower interest rates across 2020 and 2021 reduced our revenue by approximately $2 billion. This was partly driven by lower Canadian banking deposit spreads and lower asset yields impacting City National. Going forward, we are well positioned to benefit from the likely scenario of rising interest rates. We estimate that a 25 basis point increase in short-term interest rates could result in over 175 million of additional revenue over 12 months in our Canadian banking and U.S. wealth management businesses. We expect this benefit to be compounded by higher volumes and a shift in mix towards higher yielding assets over time. At the same time, we expect the benefit from rate hikes to be impacted by the competitive asset pricing environment as economies recover. As interest rates increase, we expect deposit repricing in our low beta retail banking deposit franchises will slowly increase towards historical levels over time reflecting trends we experienced in the previous rate hike cycle. An environment of higher interest rates and a normalization of surplus liquidity in wholesale markets would be beneficial to our 300 billion repo business where spreads have declined significantly from 2020 levels. Turning to expenses on slide 11. Non-interest expenses were up 1% year over year or 3% excluding the impact of variable and stock-based compensation. Adjusting for the partial release of the legal provision in U.S. wealth management and excluding variable and share-based compensation across our businesses, expense growth was 5% year-over-year. Salaries and benefits were up 4% as we continued to invest in sales capacity and back-end operations to support increasing client activity in our many growth verticals. We also saw an increase in marketing and travel costs compared to levels in the first half of 2021. The top, sli- top of slide 12 gives you an idea of how we think about expenses. We have grouped total costs across a continuum of key categories, including the foundational governance costs to run the bank. These would include regulatory and risk management costs. A large part of our run-the-bank spend is also related to operational and technology costs, including our core systems. We continue to act on opportunities to drive efficiencies and productivity in these areas while investing and innovating for the future. We expect our scale and growing revenue to generate inherent operating leverage over this cost base, which is relatively less variable in nature. Our new digital account opening experience for retail clients has reduced the average time to completion by nearly 70%. This has freed up capacity for our advisors 
to focus on delivering value-added advice and deepening client relationships. Our app dev teams are utilizing our next generation development platform, which is generating efficiency through automation and reuse. There's another bucket of costs, which are investments to add new revenue-generating products and capabilities, which Dave spoke to earlier. And lastly, there are investments to drive growth that have a flexible cost structure, which represent approximately 30% of our cost base. These are costs that largely scale up or down with revenue generated, including our commission sales force and client-facing employees in our capital markets and wealth management platforms, where we pay for performance. There are also variable non-compensation costs, such as trade execution, where we will look to drive productivity improvements. Now to the bottom of the slide for our expense expectations, excluding variable and share-based compensation. We expect structural costs to be higher this year, partly due to the impact of inflation, along with the realization of previously committed costs, such as higher salaries. We will continue to invest in technology, add to our client-facing sales force across our largest segments, and scale our marketing spend to drive forward our strategic priorities. And we will continue to invest in efficiency initiatives that streamline and simplify our operations and processes. In aggregate, we expect annual expenses, excluding variable and share-based compensation, to grow at the higher end of the low single-digit range in 2022. This includes the recognition and subsequent partial release of the legal provision in U.S. wealth management. And as we recognize the benefits of the forward curve, we expect our full-year Canadian banking efficiency ratio to fall under 40% in 2023. Moving to our business segment performance, beginning on slide 13. Personal and commercial banking reported earnings of $2 billion this quarter, up 10% from last year. Canadian banking net interest income was up 3% year-over-year as strong volume growth was partially offset by lower spreads. Growth in business volumes was strong on both sides of the balance sheet. While credit card balances increased, this was largely due to higher transactor balances as revolve rates remain near pandemic lows. Higher credit card spend also contributed to higher non-interest income, as did higher mutual fund distribution fees. Canadian banking generated operating leverage of 2.8%, with expenses up 3% year over year. Turning to slide 14. Wealth management reported earnings of $795 million, up 24% from last year. The segment generated positive operating leverage even after adjusting for the partial release of last quarter's legal provision. Canadian Wealth Management, U.S. Wealth Management, and RBC Global Asset Management revenue growth benefited from higher fee-based client assets reflecting favorable equity markets and net sales. RBC GAM generated positive net sales of over $5 billion this quarter. However, Canadian retail sales were lower than the prior year, partly due to redemptions out of fixed income funds, especially in December, which saw heightened market volatility. U.S. wealth management revenue also benefited from continued double-digit volume growth at City National, partially offset by lower spreads. Turning to insurance on slide 15. 
Net income of $197 million decreased 2% from record first quarter results a year ago. Lower earnings were largely due to claims experience and the impact of lower new longevity reinsurance contracts. These factors were partially offset by business growth and higher favorable investment-related experience. On to slide 16. INTS net income of $118 million decreased 4% from a year ago, mainly reflecting higher technology-related costs. The current quarter also saw higher revenue from funding and liquidity, client deposits, and asset services businesses. Turning to slide 17. Capital markets reported earnings of over $1 billion, down 3% from last year including the impact of a higher effective tax rate. Pre-provision pre-tax earnings surpassed $1 billion again this quarter, helping drive our strong book value growth. Corporate and investment banking reported record revenues of $1.4 billion, underpinned by record loan syndication and M&A fees, higher equity origination fees, record lending revenue, and higher debt origination fees also contributed to stronger revenue. In contrast, global markets revenue continued to moderate from elevated levels last year as narrower spreads impacted both FIC and repo revenue, which were down 12% and 5% respectively. Equities revenues were robust, but down 2% from strong results last year. To conclude, we are well positioned to continue growing client-driven volumes and benefit from higher interest rates. Looking forward, we remain focused on disciplined cost management and balancing our capital deployment to continue delivering value for our shareholders and clients. With that, I'll turn it over to Graham. Thank you, Nadine, and good morning, everyone. Starting on slide 19, allowance for credit losses on loans of $4.4 billion remained largely unchanged from last quarter, as write-offs and release of reserves on performing loans were nearly offset by higher provisions on impaired loans. This marks our fifth consecutive quarter with reserve releases on performing loans, reflecting continued improvement in our macroeconomic outlook and in the credit quality of our portfolio. However, the magnitude of the releases this quarter were tempered by the economic uncertainty related to the headwinds I noted last quarter, namely the Omicron wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, inflationary pressure, and the pace and scale of anticipated interest rate increases. As Dave noted earlier, while the impact of the Omicron wave has now largely subsided, the impacts of inflation and rising rates are expected to persist. Reserve releases of 80 million this quarter bring our total release to 1.4 billion since the start of 2021. When combined with considerable portfolio growth of 17% over the last two years, our ACL ratio is now approaching pre-pandemic levels at 58 basis points. Turning to slide 20, our gross impaired loans of 2.1 billion were down 167 million or three basis points during the quarter. <clears throat> Impaired loan balances once again decreased across all our major businesses. New formations of $263 million were at their lowest level in almost 10 years, reflecting the significant liquidity accumulated over the pandemic, the ongoing economic recovery, and the continued benefits to clients from government support programs. Turning to slide 21, PCL on impaired loans of $180 million, or 9 basis points, was up 2 basis points quarter over quarter, but remains well below pre-pandemic levels and below our long-term averages. In our Canadian banking retail portfolio, PCL and impaired loans was up 13 million quarter over quarter with modest increases across most products. We also saw delinquencies begin to rise during the quarter. 
These increases can be attributed to a few factors, including seasonality, the winding down of certain government support programs, and decline behavior beginning to revert to more historic norms. Overall, delinquency levels remain below pre-pandemic levels. In our Canadian banking commercial portfolio, PCL and impaired loans was up 27 million quarter over quarter, which is largely driven by provisions on two larger accounts. Despite the increase this quarter, we continue to see positive credit migration and a reduction in watchlist exposure in this portfolio. In capital markets, we had a $12 million net recovery on impaired loans in the quarter, which is the fourth consecutive quarter with net recoveries in capital markets, as this portfolio continues to benefit from a constructive operating environment and strong market liquidity. Finally, in wealth management, PCL and impaired loans decreased 11 million quarter over quarter, largely due to the reversal of a provision taken in the information technology sector last quarter at City National. And I'll turn briefly to market risk on slide 22. During the quarter, we saw market volatility increase as central banks started to reverse course on monetary policy, the Omicron wave of the pandemic hit its peak, geopolitical tensions rose in Ukraine and Russia, and inflationary pressure came to the forefront. Notwithstanding the increased market volatility, there were no days with net trading losses in the quarter, as we effectively managed our market risk profile. Looking ahead, while the impact of the Omicron wave has largely subsided, market volatility is likely to persist, driven by ongoing uncertainty around monetary policy, geopolitical tensions, and inflationary pressure. We continue to take a prudent approach to market and counterparty credit risks, supported by a consistent risk appetite and a strong control environment. To conclude, we continue to be pleased with the ongoing performance of our portfolios and the resiliency of our operations through the pandemic. As we noted last quarter, the increase in PCL this quarter was anticipated as losses start to return to pre-pandemic levels. We still expect our PCL ratio on impaired loans to trend back towards historic norms through the course of 2022 and into 2023. As always, the quality of our client base and our prudent risk management approach position us well to manage through any uncertainty. Importantly, we remain steadfast in our commitment to supporting our clients and delivering advice, products, and insight to help them navigate the evolving macroeconomic and operating environment. So with that, operator, let's open the lines for Q&A. Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please set your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel the question, please press star 2. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while participants register. Thank you for your patience. And the first question is from John Aiken from Barclays. Please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Nadine, thank you for the uh, the discussion and the outlook on uh, expenses on, on slide 12. Quick question for you. When, when we look at the uh, more variable expenses, the sales advice and revenue generation, is there, is there the, uh, and I know that encompasses a whole host of um, different factors, but within that bucket, is there the possibility to generate positive operating leverage within those expenses, or is this more of a function of one-to-one in terms of expenses versus revenues? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Thanks, John. That is the objective. When we look at when we are, particularly our sales force, I mentioned some comments around how we increase their productivity and efficiency uh, in terms of the tools that we've deployed to them and in, in the way that they work. 
the other the other component of that I would say is you know part of that is also the the support groups that also travel with the with the frontline staff and so there also we're looking to drive optimization through a number of programs such that we're for every dollar of cost we generate that much more dollar of revenue that's great. And as, as a follow-on, um, David mentioned that uh, you continue to, to grow the residential uh, mortgage sales force. What, uh, what frictional costs are associated with uh, potential downsizing? So if and when we see a slowdown in, in the housing marketplace, what, uh, um, how much of a lag would that be on the efficiency ratio because of the, the buildup of the sales force? Turn over to Neil, maybe. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I mean, I don't think we really are looking at um, a, a scenario where we would, we, we haven't really contemplated that to be truthful. Um, you know, these are variable uh, commission-based salespeople. So for the most part, I think, you know, we would, we would be looking for them to go out and continue to uh, compete for volume and, you know, at the margin if we needed to slim down that sales force, the friction cost would be negligible. I mean, it's not something that would really factor into our, our outlook on, on OpLev. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Please go ahead. Good morning. I guess I uh, just wanted to go back, Dave, to your prepared remarks in terms of everything that you talked about, mortgage growth, commercial lending, co consumer spend, sounds very bullish, clearly a lot of cross-currents that the market's paying attention to including inflation, geopolitical risks. Just give us a sense of when you look at the outlook, you mentioned we are maybe mid-cycle, not early cycle in, in terms of the economic cycle. Uh, where are risks skewed to? Do you see more downside risk as we are moving forward to the growth outlook, or do you think uh, uh, the market's caught up with some of these uh, things that might be transitory and the underlying trends around immigration, things reopening back, are much more stronger. W would love any insights there. It's an important question because there's, there are a lot of mixed signals out there. When we, we look at the stage of the economic cycle, you'd say you know, commercial utilization and even monetary policy would be early cycle, but you know, capacity left in the economy would be late cycle, and the balance of where the consumer is where the economy is is solid mid-cycle, which could mean, and we expect, you know, there's a good solid couple of years of growth here or more. We we would hope so. You know, the risk factors are the all the ones we see: the geopolitical risk, inflation risk, and one of the top risk factors is the lack of, of labor capacity in the workforce. And does does the liquidity that's sitting on consumer balance sheets lead to inflation, or does it lead to growth? Those are the types of things we're going to watch and see how they play out. Net net immigration, consumer spending returning to normal, goods and services consumption, all those are very positive for kind of a mid cycle growth outlook. So I think, you know, to your question, we have to watch kind of economic capacity here and, and what the inflationary pressures are to, to Graham's point is is one of the real risks to our economy. Is it real GDP growth or are we just gonna use that two hundred or three hundred billion dollars of liquidity, two point five trillion by the way in the United States? Does that just create more inflationary pressure? I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think this is a follow-up. I think you mentioned uh, when talking about capital deployment, looking to acquire or potentially looking to acquire quality franchises and growth segments. 
unpack that for us in terms of what are things that would be attractive to Royal? You've not been very acquisitive. Uh, you've talked about asset generation capabilities in the past. Uh, would love any color, especially in a period where we are seeing some asset price dislocation correction in the public markets. We're very focused on the type of growth and quality franchise we're looking for in it. And as with City National, there was no auction around City National. It was based on a relationship I built with the Goldsmith family and Russell Goldsmith over a number of years to the point where we saw a future together. And we're doing very similar things right now. The high-quality, high-growth assets don't come up for auction for obvious reasons. So we are obviously looking to expand our network the timing is hard to predict, but we always want to be the first call. And there are a number of really attractive assets that exist. When and, and, and how they make their strategic decisions, we'll see. So I think from that perspective, we're continuing to maintain. We're looking for commercial and wealth, ultra-high net worth franchises in the United States and Europe. And we're, we have active dialogues, but it doesn't mean things are going to happen. So... I think from that perspective, it's, it's that continued focus. The city national model works. Look at the organic growth. We don't need to make an acquisition to continue to accelerate the growth and, and outperform. So when you get the right franchise, you can, you can grow it and, and, and run on it for a long period of time. And when we made the city national acquisition, we said we don't need to make other acquisitions. This franchise has enormous organic growth potential. So we are looking for similar platforms to build on like that. And as I said many times, you know, capital does not have a half-life. It only dissipates if you misspend it. So we are being smart about it. You've seen the growth numbers, and we are returning some of that capital to you, as you saw in our share buybacks. Very clear. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. The next question is from Paul Holden from CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. So I feel compelled. I just have to ask this question because of the magnitude of what's happening in Europe. Are there any kind of first order impacts we should be thinking about in terms of the Russian sanctions and RBC? And maybe I'll let Graham start and then I'll jump in with my perspective. Graham, over to you. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I mean, I think the first point to make is that, you know, we do not have any direct or meaningful exposure to, to Russia or the Ukraine I mean, that's a byproduct of the fact that we don't operate in those countries and we don't have a risk appetite uh, that, that kind of allows us to operate with clients or markets that are, that are high risk like that. Um, and so I think what we're focused on is more the indirect impacts that, that could flow through and, and certainly, you know, high levels of commodity prices. Uh, you know, those, those are interesting ones that have kind of multiple effects that we need to think through. Um, on one hand, uh, you know, Canada is a net exporter of, of natural resources and that's a positive for our economy. On the other hand, those are things that are going to continue to, to fuel and exacerbate kind of current risk concerns like inflation. And, and so, you know, those would be the areas of, of concern that we would be focused on in, in this environment. But again, I think our, our risk appetite and our operating model serve us well and, and position us well um, against these kind of emerging concerns that are happening right now in, in Eastern Europe. The only thing I would add is, you know, as you look at how markets react, the obvious volatility coming from investor uncertainty global uncertainty, but the effect on the yield curve. You've seen a little bit of tightening at the long end of the curve. There's always a flight to quality when you have such geopolitical volatility. You've seen that today, I think, with the tightening in the, in the U.S. curve, about 10 points at the long end of the curve. And, you know, does it invert temporarily? You know, what we've seen historically, as you, you all see, is that geopolitical risk tends to smooth out over time, but can be quite volatile in the short term. So, 
I still expect the strength of the economy, the inflationary pressures that we talked about, you know, economic capacity being used, that you know, I would still expect uh, you know, some form of rate increase to continue to move forward and monetary policy to continue to tighten. This underlying core drivers are very strong. Okay, that's that's great. That actually leads me perfectly into my into my real question, which is for you want to get one Nadine, <laughs> which which is which is for uh, Nadine and sort of the the NIM sensitivity or NII sensitivity you 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 provide. Obviously, there's a number of assumptions that go into that, and you kind of talked about some of the variables in your prepared remarks. What I'm particularly curious on are there certain factors um, that may lead to more NII uh, benefit from rate tightening than what you've put into your disclosed sensitivities? And if there are, can you give us a sense of what those factors might be in, you know, sort of a general order of magnitude? Sure. So I think what typically we would have referenced in the slides is the impact on our retail franchise of both Canadian banking uh, and in the U.S. wealth management business and, and pointed out, as I called in my remarks, focusing on what it looks like to the more of the curve flattening, so the rising in the short end of the rates. Uh, as it relates to other businesses, you also have Wealth Management Canada will benefit as well from uh, the spread uh, margin expansion on their deposit base. I would say one of the other big areas that I did call out in my remarks relates to capital markets and the repo business. So we have about $300 billion balance and saw margins compressed there in about 10 basis points. So that business, obviously, as rates start to move up in the short end, uh, would benefit from that margin expansion as well, coupled with the fact that we did see some balances come off uh, with the elevated liquidity levels. Those are primarily, I would say, two of the, the primary drivers from a pure interest rate perspective. That's great. That's it from me. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Grauman from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, you've been very clear in terms of your guidance uh, on expenses. Um, I think uh, what's interesting to me is there still does seem to be a disconnect a little bit between maybe the commentary that some, especially larger U.S. banks are talking about with respect to their expenses and, and the way you uh, are presenting the outlook. So I'm wondering if you could kind of delve into that in terms of structural or fundamental reasons why your expense structure is different than, than let's say, some, some uh, large banks uh, in, in the U.S. So basically trying to get at this idea of, you know, how is your outlook uh, on expenses uh, more optimistic? Um, and um, that's really the, the fundamental nature of the question. Thanks, Manny. I, I would say there's two primary components related to that. First off, we've been investing for a significant portion of time, both in our technology, our infrastructure, as you would have also noticed in, in our front office sales support staff, really that client acquisition arm of it. So we, we have been uh, investing in technology for a long time and scaling across our Canadian businesses. You'll also notice that from a perspective of depreciation, that will start, that drips in over time. So that doesn't necessarily result in an increasing cost base to the extent that you've been spending equally through the years. I would say that the other thing that we talked about was around our efficiency and our sustainability of looking at our productivity options that we have to deploy not only technology tools, but how we can be more inefficient in our, in that cost base I referenced to the 
far end of the chart there, which can tend to be a bit more fixed over time. So it's twofold there. We look at how we can be more efficient, where we work, how we work, what digitization of processes, automation, and in addition, how we can become more productive in our Salesforce staff. So how we can expand upon the every cost dollar we put out there and the revenue multiple that we generate off of that. So I think part of it, many, is really we've been investing over consistently over a period of time. I think others may be catching up to where we've been and having to increase their spend levels. Uh, but in addition, we do focus consistently across the organization on the efficiency and productivity arm of it to be able to continue to with that investment growth. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Doug Young from Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Good morning. Just wanted to go back to the capital discussion. I think you've been clear about where you see the growth opportunities. But I guess the crux of my question is, I'm curious if you can put your substantial excess capital to work organically, um, such that you would be driving down your set one ratio. And, and what are those best opportunities? And so, you know, we saw risk-weighted asset growth reduce the ratio by 29 basis points this quarter. Could we see uh, RWA growth push that ratio down 50, 60, 70 basis points is really kind of where I'm going. Yeah, I, mean, I think that is, you, you've hit on the uh, the primary objective there in terms of our organic growth, and we, we have seen the significant ability to deploy that capital in high ROE businesses and looking at good returns. You see it both within capital markets and high ROE this quarter continued uh, around how they're able to deploy it in, in the higher margin underwriting businesses, the loan book, as well as City National with that double-digit growth. So we, we are looking at how we've scaled up our businesses, particularly with the advancement of our uh, frontline sales force and the ability to deploy that balance sheet. So that is definitely an opportunity. Obviously, we saw last year some of the um, model changes with respect to RWA, so that brought it down. And we have Basel III coming on the horizon next year. Uh, which has the opportunity to improve, again, our RWA position. So there's obviously puts and takes on that, but we definitely look to continue to deploy from an organic perspective. It's, I guess where I'm going with this is this, you know, because everyone talks about M&A and, you know, we can all speculate on that and then buybacks at the margin, but, you know, the real opportunity would be to put 100 basis points of RWA to work or, or uh, to put it work like organically. And I know the credit card balance is coming back, commercial card balances, but like what I'm trying to get at is what are the best opportunities do you, do, do you foresee? And what's the most capital intensive opportunities? I think you know, we are putting a lot of our, our WA to work. The, the, the beauty of the model is that we're generating so much surplus capital from profitability and our scale and our efficiency that it, it, it drives a self-funding model to your point. So, I think the beauty is we can accelerate growth. We are accelerating growth, and we're funding a lot of it from profitability. So you're seeing us, as you said, return capital shareholders, and we still have significant strategic optionality to put capital work in an inorganic fashion when the right opportunity comes to the table. So we're in a great place. You saw strong, strong growth driven by previous investments that we've made. We continue to invest. We generate organic capital. We have strategic optionality. We are in a very good place to continue to drive premium total shareholder return. Great. Appreciate the comment. Thanks. Thank you. The next question is from Saurabh Movahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Um, I have two questions. Maybe I'll start with uh, where I think Doug left off. Uh, Nadine 
or Dave, you've mentioned capital markets several times, I think, as a good source of, uh, uh, I guess, capital deployment. Um, is that Would that be more so in the traditional banking businesses, credit, underwriting, and the like, or could there also be some capital chewed up in market risk? Why don't we have Derek answer that? Okay. Sure. Thanks, Sora. Um, appreciate the question. Uh, I, I think we see opportunities right now across both the banking business and the global markets business. Um, as Nadine said, we are very focused on trying to make sure we're only deploying capital where we see good returns. But as you've seen with the capital markets business over the last couple of years, partially due to the environment, but partially due to some of the strategic initiatives and changes we've undertaken, uh, we have notably moved up our ROE. And so that is giving us opportunities right across the platform. Uh, clearly, there are opportunities to deploy capital organically through the loan book, and that has the ancillary benefit of also supporting the non-lending or ancillary revenue opportunities through investment banking or otherwise. Uh, there's some modest capital deployment through our loan syndications and underwriting business, although we may remain very mindful of the risk environment, and so we're being quite prudent and disciplined about that. And then in different pockets of our markets business, uh, as we're looking to grow out different areas of the trading platform uh, in uh, both the U.S. and Europe, I think we will see uh, additional opportunities to deploy capital in trading as well. So it is quite, uh, quite diversified right now, but probably led more by the loan book and the uh, investment banking side. And, and Derek, just to clarify, with no real uh, change, even at the margin and risk appetite. Correct. Thank you. And then my second question is for uh, Neil. I think you talked, uh, you, you provided some statistics. I think Dave did actually around market share gains, both in checking, um, I think checking deposit stuff and mortgages and the revenue pickup. Is there any way, Neil, you could attribute how much of that is because of the kind of consistent emphasis on the RBC Ventures initiatives? Um, yeah, thanks for the question. I wouldn't point to, to ventures as a market share driver there. I, I would point to the drivers, um, maybe just start with mortgages. Um, we've talked for, I think, quite a, quite a long time just about um, investments we've made, just to picking up on Nadine's point, really thinking about that franchise, you know, front to back, about finding processes, investing in digital, investments in our, uh, our sales force, um, you know, how we flow leads to those, uh, those, market, those mortgage professionals. So it's really been, a, I think, a consistent, uh, you know, steady strategy uh, that's really paying off in the mortgage business. A little bit different in the, the core deposits business, whereas last year uh, we really came away and said, you know, we, we hadn't refreshed the value proposition for our core deposits business, and we felt we needed to make some investments there. That was, I think, a great example of a, of a technology investment that we're seeing pay, pay off. Nadine touched on, uh, you know, the sort of the tools and the ability to reduce the amount of time it takes to open one of those checking accounts. But we also put some of that technology investment into the core underlying value proposition, which really had us double down on our belief in reciprocity and, and tying it back to a core relationship strategy where when our clients bring more of their business to us, we reciprocate, you know, with a, with a fee reduction structure back to them and the ability to, to put our rewards points to use on their debit products. So, We'd say that those types of investments, and particularly uh, that shift in the value proposition that you're seeing in the marketplace for advertising, would be the driver on the deposits business. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Gabriel Deshane from National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. 
good morning. What at what point does inflation become a uh, problem? I, I know we've talked about it as a headwind, but you know, is there a very simple way of thinking it through that you know over the course of you know five, six, seven months, over a year, whatever it is, you know, Canadian inflation at five to six percent and U.S. inflation in the seven percent range that that becomes something that compels you to you know look at your your credit models and, 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 you know, start adding to provisions. And then uh, from your business outlook uh, standpoint, uh, you know, consumption, you know, if they're paying more for gas, people are paying more for gas and other stuff uh, as opposed to TVs and cars. Like when does that affect your revenue growth outlook? Thanks. Sure. Uh, thanks, Gabriel. Let me all start there. Uh, certainly on the, on the credit side, you know, certainly inflation is a factor by itself, but I think we would combine that with kind of a rising rate environment to kind of as a set of risks that, that we certainly are mindful of in our, in our credit books and certainly it's something front and center with us on that. Um, you know, I would start, we obviously have a backdrop where clients are in a very strong position with very strong liquidity and cash balances, as Dave noted earlier. I think you combine that with the fact that we've had very strong underwritings and very st- persistent underwriting standards for, for a long time that are mindful of an operating environment of higher rates and higher inflation. And so, so I don't think we kind of look at this as a surprise and something that shouldn't be considered, but we always talk about, you know, being, being prudent and consistent through the cycle. And these are kind of cyclical events that we do worry about and we, we build into our underwriting standards. I think different portfolios will, will be impacted at different times. I think there's probably more latency in, in credit in terms of inflation's impact and rates impact than maybe we would see in the revenue and expense lines. Um, and that's kind of largely related to the fact that, you know, we build good resiliency into our portfolios um, many of our portfolios, like our mortgage portfolio that Neil was just talking about, there's a, a long duration in that. And so, you know, clients both have a lot of capacity there and there's a, there's a time frame there before you would see it, clients turning over and having to refinance into a higher rate, high, you know, higher cost environment. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, it's kind of leading back to my original comments, that's why I don't think we see, um, you know, our, our views on our, our credit forecast there haven't changed largely since Q4. Um, but those okay. are headwinds that we are considering, and I think will uh, will accrue over time into higher credit costs. But those will be offset by positives elsewhere, in, you know, on the revenue side, as we previously talked about. So, th- so there's a point at which you might have to. I know I'm signaling out Royal and respect every bank, but uh, there's a point at which you would have to uh, maybe make an adjustment. Are you re- referencing a credit adjustment? Well, either, yeah, yeah. I'm not, again, I, I'm not sure you say credit adjustment. Again, I, we, we, when clients come to the door, we are constantly reassessing and assessing their credit quality, their capacity. We build in capacity for rate rises and cost rises in their, in their, you know, in the origination process. And, and again, you look at our portfolios. There's a lot of uh, equity built up with clients that give us a lot of capacity to work with them on that. So, I, you know, our credit strategy, as I said, are really designed to work through the cycle, and that won't change. We constantly reflect these factors, though, into our into our uh, reserving models. Um, you know, so certainly, as we talked about, we've had some uncertainty that's coming off with, they say, things like Omicron mm-hmm. and government support, and these are some new headwinds that are coming into play. And so we'll constantly re- reassess all of those each quarter and reflect that into our reserving models. Um, but I wouldn't say right now that that's, uh, that's a headwind that we would indicate and say that that you know we expect an increase there coming anytime soon. Okay. To your question, I think the only risk you have to watch out for is if inflationary pressures erode cash flow because salaries and benefits aren't keeping up with it, and therefore it, it challenges your, your serviceability ratios. So, you know, what we're seeing now is disposable income and salaries and are, are keeping up 
and, and tracking the inflationary pressure. But that's what you have to watch out for. And we're in this unique position where we have over $200 billion of cash sitting on consumers' balance sheets to, to mitigate a lot of that uh, in most of the economy. But how that gets spent and, and how that drives inflation versus growth, we all have to watch. So I think, I think that's what you're trying to get at, and that's what we're watching for, too. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Mandonka from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. Can I take you to page 26 of your presentation, and specifically the all-bank asset yield? I'm looking at the loan yield and how it's dropped by 27 basis points over the last 12 months. Over that time period, the five-year, uh, Bank of Canada five years up about 100 basis points. And, and the increase in the five years has been rather than recent. I would have thought that we might start to see a little bit of a move in loan yields. Uh, it might just be mix that I'm seeing here. It might be just amount of time, uh, just a matter of timing. But could you speak to when that increase in the five-year that we're seeing will translate into higher loan yields? Sure, Mariel. Thank you. I, I mean, I think you're right. A bit of it is going to be mixed overall that you're looking at. Sorry, but a bit of feedback. Um, mixed overall that we're talking about. Some of it we had expressed as part of uh, the comments around uh, the mortgage book and how the, the the competitive pricing there that is. But as five-year rates have started to to roll into higher rates, we have seen those rates go up. So you're saying we're, we are starting to see that? Uh, do you have a sense for when we might actually, uh, this exhibit on page 26, we'll actually see the inflection in loan yields in terms of timing? We'd have to, yeah, we'd have to decompose it a bit for you, Mario, because it's part, again, it's a, it's a the full book across the cash markets and city national. So as rates start to, to rise, you would expect it, but it's it's difficult. Unless I can probably get back to you and bring you a bit more of a decomposition on it. But. City national probably plays a role given how much it's impacted the short end of the curve and yeah. the long end. Yeah. It's a significant compression that we've talked about in the city national NIM uh, would distort that number. Versus, you know, have nothing to do with the Canadian long yield. That might be part of it. So we'll have to decompose that. Be one driver. We'll look at roll on, roll off on the mortgages. In Canada, will be another driver, and we can we can do a waterfall for you. And I'll five-year rate. Yeah, I was looking at the U.S. the Canadian five-year, but obviously the U.S. five-year is up as well. Maybe not as much as the Canadian, but. Um, our balance sheet is completely oriented to the short end of the curve in the United States. Right? We don't have many long-term assets. They all be priced off the short end. So, so that's what's driving the okay. deals, right? We'll need to see actual uh, central, central bank rate increases before we might see that margin to government. Correct. And that's why we gave you the sensitivity with the short end of the curve move because it has a big impact on the U.S. and Canada for us. And, you know, the longer end of the curve is quite flat. A uh, slightly different type of question. I also care a lot about um, what you're doing on the liquidity front, uh, the average repo, looking at repos, cash resources, securities, X trading. Obviously, that increased, those balances increased very significantly when the pandemic hit um, because every bank was, was building liquidity then. Um, it started to taper off. Until very recently, now we're seeing a really big increase again in repos, for example, and securities. Could you talk about repos specifically and the dynamic, the sort of market dynamic that would cause such a significant increase in repos 
from last quarter to this quarter? Derek. Sure, Mario. It's it's Derek. Uh, what what you're what you're seeing there is uh, a couple of things. Um, quarter over quarter, a big part of that is just uh, what I'll refer to as sort of seasonality or timing of the year. And so, because of the timing of our fiscal year end and our quarters versus many of our global peers that are operating on a calendar fiscal year end. Many of them will often pull back on liquidity they're providing in the market as they head into the December 31st period. Because that's intra-quarter for us, that often creates good opportunities for us to step in with liquidity around the calendar year-end period and support our clients uh, through you know, really, really just a multi-week period around year-end. And so there's a seasonality element to our repo business where uh, often we can increase our balances to support clients through that time period and then bring those back down. So that is definitely part of what you saw in terms of the quarter over quarter. Longer term, and Nadine referred to this earlier, uh, with all the liquidity that's been put into the market by central banks over the last couple of years, the demand for financing uh, through things like repo has come down, and that has brought down our volumes, but it's also had a notable spread impact. I think we would expect as liquidity starts being pulled out of the market, we will see an increased client demand uh, for financing, which would be helpful for us, but also we would over time expect that uh, to translate into higher spreads in that business. And uh, we, we've, I'd say we're very early days in starting to see that. This was the first quarter where we saw a modest uptick in spreads. So it does take time, but we would expect as rates go higher and liquidity comes out of the system, uh, that will help normalize spreads in that business. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from... Lamar Persaud from Cormark. Please go ahead. Thanks. My question is probably for, for Nadine. So I think I heard you suggest that uh, inflation is captured in the structural part of the uh, expect, expense expectation slide uh, or expect, expense expectations uh, waterfall on slide 12. Uh, so maybe clarify that. Then would it be fair to suggest that if structural costs were you know, more significantly impacted by, say, higher inflation. Could some of that 4% growth in investment and volume spend be deferred, or is there just not that much flexibility in that? I'm just really trying to uh, to assess the possibility that costs could come in uh, above your uh, your uh, guidance range here. So any, any thoughts would be helpful. Sure, thank you. So the 2% the structural does have a component, and the parts of it related to inflation would be where we had increased salaries, uh, at the start of the year, recognizing the fact that, that we were under some inflationary pressure. But that's about a third of that. About two-thirds of that is more scalable related to business volume. So, for example, Tradex, subcustody, et cetera, and also seeing the bit of the pickup in travel. The 4% you referenced of the investment, uh, a large component of that is actually investment in talent. So we've already incorporated as part of that a little bit of inflation as well, Amar, just in terms of expectations around certain of those groups that we're investing in uh, from a frontline perspective, as well as some of the rest of it would be in tools. I would say if inflation was to uh, significantly spike or push through, a couple of things just to note there. So we have put through some of it already into our full across-the-board salary base. 
The other piece of it is some of our cost base actually is not going to be immediately impacted by inflation. We do have a number of costs that will be fixed in nature. For example, our occupancy is already predetermined costs. Secondly, a lot of the depreciation with related to our app dev spend or some of that investment in technology is actually from historical spend as it pulls through from an NIE standpoint. We do have opportunity to scale on that, but also on the uh, efficiency and productivity side that we referenced there is an area that we're heavily focused on to be able to continue to invest. And as, if inflation persists further you know, into, into the future, it's an area that we can continue to look at to, uh, to continue our investment and play with that lever as well. Great, thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mike Rizvanovic from Stiefel. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. A question probably for Neil. Uh, so I, I do I do see the market share gains that you had just looking over a longer term horizon, but you have lost share in the uh, the residential mortgage balances I'm referring to among the big six uh, each of the past three quarters. And I know in the past you've had some uh, discussion points around uh, spreads in the market and competitive dynamics and maybe some aggressive pricing from peers. So I'm wondering what your near-term outlook might be on on when you expect those market share losses to abate. Yeah, I appreciate the question. Uh, We made some comments last year just about uh, making a decision to take a little bit more margin when we were kind of at the height of the market in terms of volume, just to make sure we we didn't lose any, any volume in the pipeline. Um, we converted all of those. I was kind of like, I'd say, mid-year last year. Since then, we've been competing, I think, very hard and feel very comfortable of what we're taking out of the market. I think one of the things um, you need to get underneath is the difference between Aussie market share and the CBA market share data. Um, there's different inputs into each of them. So, so the, one of the differences being just wholesale funding and, and purchasing mortgages, something we don't do. And uh, one, at least one of our competitors, uh, we would say that's part of what's driving um, some of the trends I think you're referring to. Just gets back to our strategy, which is, you know, we believe in owning the channel. We have a proprietary um, uh, sales strategy. We own the relationship, and it all kind of ties back to owning the client and being able to cross-sell. So, um, you know, I don't think we have anything in our sights about us losing market share on the mortgage business. I appreciate the color. And then maybe just to follow up on Dave's uh, guidance earlier on uh, mortgage growth remaining in that high single-digit range uh, for the rest of this year, I believe, is what the comment was referring to. So so I'm, I'm just looking at some of the trends that we've seen lately, including you've got, like, the recent originations, about 60% of them have been uh, variable. And just thinking back to the, the rate hikes that we saw in 2017, uh, it, it sort of pushed the mortgage uh, growth all the way down to that low single digit. I think it troughed at around 3%. So I'm wondering if we do get what the bond uh, market is pricing in right now, something in the range of six rate hikes, would your 2023 outlook be uh, looking something like uh, you know low to mid single digit range at best in terms of growth? Yeah, it's Neil again. I'll, I'll, I'll take the question. So did, did, I guess to give you a bit of an extended outlook, you know, Dave made the comment that, you know, mortgage outlook towards the end of the year would be high single digits. As we see rates come up, naturally cooling the market, uh, slowing down some activity, we'd see that get into mid-single digits to end 2023. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks for the caller. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan from Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. 
Oh, good, good morning. Uh, a lot has been asked about the Canadian PNC, but I wanted to, to kind of focus on the, the Sydney national side. And the one thing that struck me was uh, the retail book grew 25% year over year, and you, call it, you kind of called out uh, mortgage growth leading, similar to Canada. So I was just wondering, um, you know, you know, maybe an update on the strategy there. Anything differentiated? And uh, is it fair to assume that the U.S. growth um, this year would be higher or could be higher than on the Canadian side. Thanks. So it's Dave. I'll, I'll make some comments. On, we're very happy with the city national growth, both on the commercial CNI side as well as, as you pointed out, on the consumer side. It's, it's a result of our strategy I've been talking about for years, hiring private bankers in our key markets, expanding our capability to jumbo mortgages, cross-selling those jumbo mortgages, into to core deposit and investment accounts. So you're seeing just the acceleration of the investments and the strategy starting to play out for us, and it's our fastest-growing uh, line of business now. now. Followed strongly by very strong entertainment growth. Our entertainment clients are busy. There's an enormous amount of content investment, as I pointed out in my speech, into con- global content production. You know, we have a fantastic core capability in entertainment banking from production through to talent. Management. So I think from that, FilmTrack was an important acquisition in, in the IP side for us to play a bigger bigger role in the entertainment industry. And, and our, our core CNI real estate and uh, commercial, you know, we're seeing great progress on our mid-corporate. I think we're at almost $2 billion of growth there already. Um, so that strategy, again, seeded by investment of building out teams and core markets, bringing new clients in, the, you know, this franchise has a proven ability over decades to execute organically at an exceptional high-quality growth level. And we're seeing as we move into new territories, whether it be jumbo mortgage or mid-corporate commercial, that customer-centric franchise that brings new clients in has proven that it can extend geographically and it can extend into new customer segments. And we're very, very happy with the progress. Thank you, Dave. One more question Thanks. and I'm going to cut it off. Thank you. So the last question will be from Saurabh Mobahedi from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you. I just wanted to actually go to Doug Guzman. Which, Doug, you've got the expanded responsibilities now that include, I think, overall wealth. As, as you think about the opportunities there, should we be thinking you will be focused more on the top line or efficiency improvements? And maybe you can talk a little bit across the geographies as well. Sure. Thanks. Um... Yeah, I, first of all, I don't think you should expect a radically new strategies across these businesses at all. Um, the uh, wealth businesses, so U.S. wealth, the brokerage business, and our Canadian wealth management business, also a brokerage model, have had the, the, the parts of their operations that made sense to be centralized have been uh, throughout. So our operations uh, function, we run on the same rails on, on the operations side, the products and strategy function. Uh, at the margin, maybe there's a little more room for more communication, but I don't think you're going to see much really different there. Dave's talked to, to City National. Top-line growth is really important there. Growing the infrastructure into the size of the revenue base is also important, and, and expenses are important. So I don't think I'd pick between revenue uh, and expense, but we're optimistic. Both those businesses in the U.S. have shown really strong growth, big investments in technology and in the, in, in the U.S. wealth management, the brokerage. Uh, very attractive destination for FAs, financial advisors in the U.S. We've had good growth on that side and um, uh, expense expense control throughout. On the Canadian, 
businesses. Um, you continue to see us outselling the competition. Our market share in, in global asset management and the retail mutual fund business remains 50% above number two, and it's actually gapping out because our sales exceed our underlying market share. Similarly, in Wealth Management Canada, where we've had great success attracting advisors and a very low direct expense growth. So I think kind of both. The caveat, of course, is markets. We can't control uh, markets, but we feel like we're positioned for any eventuality. Historically, in market disruptions in our home market, we've benefited because we've been able to remain consistent and we've got a higher level of advice content in our delivery. There remains considerable cash on uh, retail customer individual balance sheets, and that cash needs to move to longer-term investments for uh, for their life planning, and 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 we're and we're working on that as well. So, feel pretty good about all all the bits I just covered. And Doug, just just for crystal clarity, you don't think you need any capital for inorganic engines on this. This is all organic. You're talking about. We don't need capital for inorganic. Um, the 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 growth uh, emphasis in in domestic wealth management on the distribution side has been hiring people. So that's, that's expense investment in people and building capabilities. And we've, and that's the reason we're, we're continuing to gain market share. We're able to deliver more to our customers on a relationship than we have in the past. And that protects fees over time. Uh, we don't need more scale in Canada. Similarly in, in other markets, um, while we're open to it, we don't need to do anything on the, on the acquisition side. Thank you for taking my follow-up question. Thank you. This will conclude the question and answer session. I'd like to turn the meeting back over to Mr. Dave Mackay. I'd like to thank everyone for, for a, a lot of great questions. And uh, as I sum up kind of our quarter again, we're very happy with the way we started the year. And the themes that we wanted to li really leave you with today was just the, res the impact of the investments and the consistent investment strategy across all our businesses is, is producing high ROE, high quality growth across all our franchises. And you, your questions touched on all of that growth today, whether it's private banking and 25 and, and CNB and 25% jumbo mortgage growth with high net worth customers. You know, the strong CNB entertainment, real estate, and now mid-market growth fueled by an expansion uh, and hiring strategy there. U.S. wealth management building completely new technology platforms. That investment has led to an $8 billion secured lending portfolio with $80 million of revenue. Canadian banking launching Vantage and continue to expand our, our value proposition, driving you know, really strong customer acquisition and profitability in core banking and market share gains. Capital markets, a long-term strategy, is executing against expanded industry coverage, uh, bringing new MDs and focusing on high-growth high opportunity sectors like healthcare and technology driving really strong non-interest revenue growth. It's the consistency and the approach and the focus on the strategy is delivering results and that's the message that we really want to hear. And as many of your questions pointed to, we have a line of sight and flexibility to manage the uncertainty around the inflationary environment. We have levers, you've touched on those levers with your questions and very much we feel like we have an exciting year ahead of us. So thank you very much for your questions. Look forward to seeing you in Q2. Be well. Thank you.
The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and thank you for your participation. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.